Hello, my name is Zach, and I'm a first-year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine. Hi, my name is Amar. I'm a rising senior and econ student at Case Western. Welcome to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. And in this week's episode, we're welcoming Dr. David Langer, Chair of Neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. And if that name sounds familiar, you would know that Dr. Langer is also one of the stars in the Netflix documentary series, Lenox Hill. While being very prolific with research in neurosurgery, Dr. Langer is also well accomplished in the startup space with his new app, Playback Health. The app enables healthcare providers to create highly personalized multimedia that patients can take home. So thank you, Dr. Langer, for joining us. Uh, and just to start off, you know, we know that you're a neurosurgeon and that hard work takes precedence. But other than studying, we were wondering, what did you like to do for fun during uh, medical school or during undergrad? I didn't have any fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, honestly, I had more fun in medical school than I did in college. You know, I, um, I was a rower in college and I, that's a very kind of between pre-med and rowing, it's a pretty kind of structured life. I didn't really feel like I missed out on anything, but I didn't have my a typical college experience, but I stretched the imagination. So, you know, by the same token, um, I found medical school to be amazing. I mean, I, we, I, I just, some of it was the school I went to. I was, I went to Penn and um, it's just the nature of the school. It's on an undergraduate campus. It's very kind of collegiate in its location. I thought that uh, I had great friends. I thought that um, I really was able, I took a year off during medical school. So I did a year of research and I was able to continue rowing all through med school and I loved Philadelphia. And, you know, I think I was a little bit mature as a medical student. I kind of knew what I wanted and I, I grew up a bit as a medical student. I, I, honestly, um, just love the training. I, I really didn't look at it as uh, giving up anything. It's kind of like your life's like, a, there's no beginning and end to it. I think the minute you start stop thinking about, you know, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, that there's, there's no rush. And um, I started really um, developing that kind of attitude right, right out of college. I took a year off after college, went to England for a year, and it kind of opened my eyes to this. And uh, it's something I try to live with every day. So what I do for fun, I love to ski, I love to fish, I love fly fishing, I'm not very good at it, in fact I suck, but um, I love being in, in nature and being just, rivers are just so beautiful in the mountains, you know, trout tend to live in beautiful places. I love the saltwater fly fish, which is, um, you know, a little bit easier to catch fish because when they hit the line, it's hard to, they pretty much stay on, it's not as difficult to get a take, so I can be better at that than, than freshwater fishing. And then my wife, and I've uh, gotten, have learned, I learned to ski as a kid, but we both, when I got married to her, we started skiing together and I take lessons with her every year. It's something I have gotten really good at, you know, just by constant practice and really making an effort. And so I just love the outdoors and I would, you know, living in New York city, it's uh, great to get away from this, the, from this place. And so I think those are the, my favorite things to do besides like drinking tequila. That seems much more New York City. Seems like you're pretty adventurous. Are you a big traveler? I like to say, I mean, I luckily my job is, has given me the opportunity to travel all over the world. I've been to Japan a few times, Korea, China. I haven't been to Africa. I've been to Israel, you know, Europe, Helsinki, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Utrecht, London, Italy. You know, so I, I really enjoy it. I've been to Brazil as a tourist, um, been to Mexico. Um, and obviously all over the country, I've been able to 
travel for work. You know, I, I think for, for pleasure, you know, there have been, it's, it's, uh, it's been, we, we, we spend a lot of our free time skiing at the beach. So I can't say I've been as adventurous with my, um, you know, non-work related trips. Some of it's just, uh, that hopefully will in increase as I get a little older, but um, I, I really enjoy traveling. I think it's, you know, and during COVID though, I think we all learned that, uh, you know, sitting in one place wasn't so bad either. And, you know, traveling super fun. It's, um, but uh, I think, you know, being happy at home and having a life that you live every day that you really enjoy is ultimately what matters. If, if you're looking for like some sort of out every time you travel to get away from your real life, you probably should get a better real life. <laughs> well said. COVID's also made doing stuff like this a lot easier. Best pandemic ever for this stuff. I mean, I, I think uh, these chaotic stress situations always have positives. And, you know, even with our show, we never would have had the ability to impact as many young people as if there wasn't for COVID. You know, we might've been better well-known, might've been flying over the country to give talks and been all the ego stuff, but it's been far more impactful because everyone's on Zoom or Teams or whatever. And since the technology is so easy to use and, and um, people are willing to use it, which didn't happen, uh, you know, in February of 2020, um, we can do really be have more of a impact, I think, on young people, which is the pur purpose of the show than we would have ever otherwise have been. And I, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, I know people like you and other virtual networking calls have been super impactful on my career, uh, especially during this time, because I can reach out and speak to so many different people. From that, I'm kind of wondering, you know, how the relationships you've cultivated through, say, uh, networking had an influence on your career. Yeah, I give a talk. I was asked to give a talk at a, at a TEDx um, in uh, Ontario. It's online. It's actually, if you want to watch it, it's just to see it. I, if they asked me to give a talk, and I had given a talk at our Brain Turns conference uh, the previous summer about leadership and this kind of thing. And I showed the, this woman, a, she's Canadian, you know, young student, showed the talk. And after, I thought it was a great talk. She goes, well, Dr. Langer, you know, it was a great talk, but you already gave that talk. I'm like, okay, we want a new talk. I'm like, okay, like, you know, I'm kind of busy, you know, I'm, it's, I'm not getting paid for this. So you want me to, well, could you do, I said, you know what, screw it, I'll do a new talk. And the name of the, the um, conference was Invisible Forces was the name of the TEDx. And um, so I just did a lot of thinking and I, up until like the day before I, and you had to record it too. Like they wanted the talk recorded. I couldn't even do it live, which was even worse. I hate giving recorded talks because I can always, I can do anything live and I can sort of wing it and be okay. But when you record it, you actually have to, you know, prepare it and do it. So she was like, I was meeting with her the next day and I just had like this epiphany about invisible forces. I was reading an article in the times about how there are 300,000 fewer deaths I mean, 300,000 fewer births this year than there were in the previous year. And that the same thing happened during the pandemic in 1917, the Spanish flu pandemic. And it turns out when you have these pandemics, people do two things. One, they're more stressed economically, so they tend to have fewer children. But even more importantly is there are all these collisions that didn't happen, like these two people didn't meet at a bar or relations don't flourish or people who were dating before COVID break up or because they can't see each other, or a variety of reasons why. And it kind of got me thinking, well, if we're talking about the randomness of these of relationships anyway, and even the fact that we're on Earth is completely, statistically, incredibly um, unlikely. 
But then I started thinking about my life and the different collisions and people that have affected me and how one thing led to another with the understanding that, you know, your, your career begins right now, that the, the relationships that you build, the trust you have in your, in your colleagues and your mentors directly impacts your success. There's no question. And it doesn't mean you know where you're going. It's a very circuitous pathway. And if you told me I was going to be here sitting here in Lenox Hill Hospital, was, you know, when I first started in residency, there's no way I was going to do that. I had no interest. But, you know, funny things happen on the, in life. And the only thing you can trust is your own self to do, be ethical and do the right thing and then have trust in the people. You don't, you get burned sometimes. I mean, I've been burned. I've had bad mentors, people taking advantage of me, but then you move on and you learn from that and you fail. But that's really the essence of, of your career. You never, doesn't mean everyone's going to win a Nobel prize, but by the same token, uh, you're guaranteed success one form. And you're going to make mistakes and one road might've led to more happiness or money, but that doesn't mean it was necessarily straightforward. And so I think that's, you start building your career right now with the people you meet and the relationships that you're maintaining. And you can always tap into those down the road and, and, lead, and they can continue to contribute to your success. Like uh, as you were talking about mentors, um, for some of the listeners that, that don't know, Dr. Langer actually did research under Dr. Carrico, I believe, one of the most influential researchers that was involved in the development of the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. And we were just wondering if you could tell us about your time working with her and your relationship with her as a mentee. Yeah, I didn't know that she was going to win the Nobel Prize back then, but she was the best scientist I'd ever, and I, not that I've had met that many scientists back when I was an undergraduate medical student or, or a resident. When I, I worked for her about 10 years. But um, Kate is a remarkable, remarkable person. I've met a lot of scientists at Penn, looked at a lot of labs, and I, you know, there was something very pure and trusting about her. Uh, some of the other people I met were more political or more money driven or more egomaniacal or, you know, a lot of these guys who run labs are more worried about their grants or, you know, what, what paper they're on, or it's a very, science is a very political business. In fact, one of the reasons, you know, regretfully I left Kate, you know, I, I was supposed to stay with her as her medical collaborator. I had a job at Penn and my boss left Penn and asked me to go with her. Also, I, you know, would have been working with her probably the rest of my life. And it's a, huge regret I have. I mean, um, especially with how it's, even before COVID, she was incredibly successful. And, you know, I don't look at it as, I, I, I'd be lying to you if I didn't have some regret about it. But by the same token, I think it's emblematic of, you know, a, a, someone's path you crossed. And I always wanted to be a surgeon. You know, I really wanted to be a great surgeon. And working in a lab can be really tough. You know, it's applying for grants and you know, I'm not a great grant writer. I didn't, I don't think I had the, um, I probably could have done it, but I didn't have the the kind of um, uh, concentration and the, the focus, I think, at least at that time, that I would have been comfortable just learning about grants every year. And I also enjoy, you know, taking care of patients and the, the kind of benefit of that feedback. And in addition, wanted, wanted to make a reasonable living so I could do things like fly fishing and skiing. And I think that I made a decision not to focus on research uh, for many of those reasons. And um, so when I left, I've kept in touch with Ken. I just actually talked to her today. You know, she taught me so many things and I continue to not, not learn from her directly, but her behavior and her focus on, she, these all the awards, she's getting awards like every week now. I mean, 
huge recognition. Like prob she will be one of the most well-known scientists in the world in historically, because we're living in a different age than like Jenner and Pastor. We're living in a social media age. Plus it was COVID and like her, you know, essential foundational observation led directly to the RNA vaccine. Even today we were talking about how there are people who are out there bad mouthing her because they said they were the essential ones. And what, what Kate represents is the work of many people, but her seminal dis discovery led directly to the ability to use RNA as a, as a drug. And um, she joked you know, with all the um, people at Penn that pushed back at her, there's, a, well, there's one particular guy that kicked her out of her office because she didn't have a grant. And she saw him last week and she told me the story that he, she went up to, to Sean and said, hey, do you remember when you kicked me out of my desk and I told you this was going to be a museum someday? I was right. Like Kate, Kate knew how smart she was and she knew that she was onto this and knew what she was, she knew she could do it. And she had a single mind to the determination to make this her life's work. And I think she knew in her heart that this is um, her, you know, going to work and that got her through, you know, I think some really tough times. And so I've learned from her behavior from her photo and, and the whole concept of doing a, a, a con good control experiment, you know, the doing the best, the, the ultimate, you've got to believe your data because if you just assume your data isn't, like, we all have theories and we, we look at the data trying to prove ourselves right. Kate has, is remarkable that she's trying to prove herself wrong. She's looking for reasons why she, and then she accepts the data as real. It doesn't like to make up something, you know, to, to explain herself. And I think she's so pure and that's why she's so successful, because a lot of scientists aren't like that. And in fact, a, a perfect control is what led to her discovery about uh, RNA and this, this modification in messenger RNA that led to the COVID vaccine. And, and it's, she should be a multi-billionaire, and she's not, because money was never her focus. So it's, again, money should not be your focus in life. It may come to her. She's making millions now off all the awards she's won. But she, that to her doesn't change her, who, who she is, essentially, or her life. She is a pure, purely driven by scientific questions and answers. And I think that's something that I really try to emulate in my life, you know, and whether I've realized it or not, it's what I, it's where I live personally. And um, while I regret not sticking with her and maybe being more famous, I recognize that maybe if I was with her, she might not have met Drew Weissman because she wouldn't have been at that, you know, Xerox machine that day, which, which led to this incredible collaboration. So it was probably a good miss for the world. And uh, I can, I can uh, you know, I don't know if you know the whole story about that, but that's, you know, it was a, an accidental meeting between her and Drew that led to the, the ultimate observation. And so, you know, you don't know how things would have turned out if I stayed there. And so I can't, you know, pretend to believe that I would have been uh, as successful as they've been had I stayed at Penn. Yeah, I was actually reading about Andrew Wakefield the other day uh, and the danger of him trying to you know, prove himself right. So you know, it's polar opposite in that Dr. Carrico is trying to prove herself wrong. Even in surgery, all the time you see something and then you just assume this, it's not right or, you know, you don't take it at face value because you're so biased because of your own emotions. Like you don't want to believe it. And you try to sort of convince yourself that something's happening isn't happening. And that's, that's kind of the best example, at least in medicine, you know, you've got to really be honest with yourself and see beyond the obvious. And 
it's very hard to do. You know, I, I think I fail like this all the time because there's just, you know, also when you add in the risk and for example, a lot of people don't do post-op scans, but they just don't want to see what they've done because they might see something that they don't like. That, that's a perfect example of that. Like, are you kidding me? You got to, I mean, if there's something wrong, you fix it. Well, people don't want to see that because they don't want people to know or don't want the patient to know. Or, and so when you're living in that world, you, you basically run into problems. And um, right now, there's a patient, as an example, in my service that I did a big operation on that has this little swelling that came up today. I'm like, oh, my God, it must be infected. I'm going to have to operate on her. And I know she's infected. I'm pretty sure. But I, I'm just, you know, at least I'm, 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 I'm basically admitting it's, there's a problem. Um, and so I'll, I'll, you know, do the right thing. But, um, you know, in the end, uh, I, I think that that's an example of how basic research and working with other people that are outside your, your primary interest uh, can really be impactful on your life, no matter what you do. And that everyone has something to offer and that your mentors don't necessarily have to be in the area that you're interested in. You can find people that can be influential in your life, no matter what you do. Yeah, I think that's a great segue for the next topic, which is, you know, the relationships you built while you were building Playback Health and key people that might have been necessary for that to happen. Uh, actually, also for the audience who might not know what Playback Health is. Could you give like a quick description or a mission statement? For, for a mission statement for? Oh, uh, Playback Health. Um, that's a good thing. I actually have something. Well, I guess, you know, mission statement is to um, bring our world to you. Nice. It's like the value prop. Um, well, the value prop is that we use, um, you know, social media you know, de deeply in our lives, the way we communicate, the way we talk to one another, uh, whether it's audio, video, text, um, you know, downloads, PDFs, it's, everything's mobile and, and efficiently communicated. Like the way our children are, we communicate outside of the hospitals is just very, you know, rapid. And um, if you look at the military, the way they communicate, I mean, they've got very sophisticated techniques to make sure everyone knows what's going on. Well, healthcare is the opposite. And it's one thing for not to be able to communicate with one another, which is bad enough. But the fact is the patients enter this world and, and, and they don't understand, most of them don't understand a darn thing. And they leave sometimes scared, confused. Um, and uh, but we're not using any of these rarely available technologies to communicate with our patients nor ourselves. And that, the assessments of playback is to solve that problem, to bring up the know-how, the freemia, the freeware, and the mobility, the supercomputers in our pockets and use them in a functional capacity at the, at the bedside. That's really it. I mean, it's, it's very, very simple because, you know, I, I guarantee you go to a hospital. If you see someone using a mobile phone uh, to help take care of you, that's, that's a remarkable issue. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And it has to do with a lot of legacy and lack of money and creativity and, and failure to think out of the box on a massive scale in healthcare. And it's, we're, we're aiming to change that. That's our goal. I guess uh, one thing we were wondering about, you know, since you had to create a team to build that app and for that process, we were wondering what relationships were important uh, to creating Playback Health. Yeah, that goes back to um, I was uh, when my kids were born. I really wanted to uh, learn how to use iMovie. It's like 2005. 2004 and the new Apple store in Soho had just opened up. It was at like the first Apple store. 
And they had these courses there, which they still have, but respect the fact that in 2004, Apple was not, there was no iPhone, there was no iPad. It was a computer company. And there were all these kind of, I was one of these Apple geeks, you know, you just to go there just to hang out there because it was just so cool. And it wasn't nearly the company it is today, but, you know, I was an Apple guy from day one. And I, you know, I went down there to take a course on how to use iMovie. And I just would go down after work and do like once a week for about eight weeks, did like a two hour course on, and then I was making movies of my kids. I made one movie, my son's first haircut, haircut and all this. And after it was over, I, there was, I realized um, that I want to really trick out my apartment. Like this is before Sonos and before, um, you know, any kind of digital anything. And I just bought a Panasonic plasma TV. This right around 2005, 2006, this huge heavy thing. It cost me 8,000 bucks. But I realized that because it was digital, I could, I could project my computer onto this. That the people weren't thinking this way. And I was like, wow, if I could project my computer in there, maybe if I hook up my computer to my stereo system, I can use my TV as a stereo to select the music I want. If I load all my CDs onto it. So, you know, because we used to have these CD players that are like this turntable thing that would sort of like literally, and you'd never, you'd always listen to C, you didn't know where anything was. It was there were an index properly. You had to type the name of each one in, like each by letter. When you put it in there, there was no auto reader. And, you know, it was, it was really torture. So I figured once I get into my computer, I can make better playlists. This is way before iTunes, this kind of thing. So I called the, the teacher that taught me about iTunes, iMovie, who can help me do this? And he told me this guy, Ken Court. Well, Ken is still with me. And Ken was the computer guy that set up the servers at the Apple store. And he, he started working with me in 2007 in the hospital after make, making my department cool. Then we started working together in the hospital. And I created an Apple environment in the hospital. And I started making quick time videos of the screen of MRIs. And I would burn a CD and give it to patients. Like I would go over their MRI and then give it to them. And I started doing that around 2007. And then 2008, Apple went to, they went from a, they went from a, changed their microprocessor to an Intel chip for Motorola. And then you could start running emulation software on an Apple machine. So I could start running all the hospital legacy EMR software on my Apple computer. So I could do both things simultaneously. And then Northwell recruited me in 2010. I demanded Ken come with me. So Ken became like this Apple geek inside a hospital full time. And we went, we actually visited Apple and they kind of were, really cool to our ideas. And I was on their website for a while on their science website, but really what changed is the world changed that patient experience became valuable on the cloud and, um, and the mobility that everybody had a mobile device. And that, that combination of all those three things, ultimately it was a change. You know, we had the adoption piece, but the inflection was really patient experience and cloud that healthcare is open to using these, the patient experience became a moneymaker and cloud you know, um, was a, a valuable, you know, way to store data. And those things are ultimately what led to us, our ability to create this company, because before that, there's no way you'd be able, able to get traction. And we've just completed our first major deal with Northwell to, you know, radically alter the healthcare environment or try to by using a uh, essentially Instagram for healthcare. And that's what playback is. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, you had that friend come from you know, an Apple to the hospital that you were at, you know, how do you convince someone that is in a stable position, had a stable job to kind of, you know, jump ship and, uh, you know, join you in that kind of process? I think the secret to being an entrepreneur is, um, you know, there's like two kinds of leaders, gold star leaders that, you know, get all the, 
SAT scores and, you know, grades and, you know, grants and, and get on committees and move up the food chain. And, but a North Star person has an idea and then convinces people to join him or her. And I, what I did with Ken had a consultancy. He was basically serving like, you know, fashion and a lot of people that were a little bit kind of esoteric and not really interested in doing, you know, healthcare. And um, he was making, you know, I think about 150, 200,000 bucks doing that. I just basically said, look, if I can give you your salary, will you go? And we knew that Northwell was such a big health system that if there's any place you're going to be able to, you know, create something like this because of the size of it and the complexity of it. Plus, we have all these different options. We have an ER, ambulances and uh, outpatient care, inpatient care, you know, high acuity stuff, low acuity stuff, psychiatry, pediatrics. It had everything built into it that there'd be no better place to develop this idea than there. And he bought and he so I got him paid. And um, he decided to take a shot and he's been with me ever since, you know? And so, you know, it took us, you know, almost, I moved, came to Northwell in 20, 2010. So it's, here we are 2021. You know, if it wasn't for COVID, I think we probably would still be struggling a little bit, but COVID's opened people's eyes to the importance of technology and the, and the, the value of thinking out of the box. I also think the EMRs are, are in many cases hold healthcare companies back from doing creative things. We happen to have a lousy EMR in all scripts. It's like the worst of the three. And so rather than, you know, changing out your EMR and buying a new EMR, which is, would cost billions, there's an opportunity here to really change the way that the that, that, that medical record is, is curated and, sh and shared and, and created. And that's, we're firmly in, in that space. And I feel like Kate with the RNA, like I know this is going to be the right thing. And having, and going back to how Kate affects me, I see the world differently than many people and, and were, was in this very early and know this is going to work and know it's the right thing. It's a little bit more difficult in some ways because not just an experiment, I have to change incentives and the executive suite and build a team around me. So it's in some ways more complicated than just doing an experiment, writing a paper, but I feel like I'm uniquely suited to be able to do that given the amount of time I've been at Northwell to be able to be that impactful. Uh, earlier on, uh, you mentioned this idea of like gold star versus North star leaders. And I thought that was really interesting. Where did you kind of, uh, you know, come to that realization and see how it applied in your life? I, you know, it's funny. I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I, I'm on Twitter and I just, this one, uh, um, it was her, her, uh, she's a Berkeley professor. Her name is, um, I'll get her name for you. She's, she came up with this idea. It wasn't me. I, what way I listened, what I heard about it was I, um, I was on a, uh, a, uh, I take it an email every weekend called Farnham street, which is a really cool thing. It's worth looking up. This guy named Shane Parrish. He basically curates content on leadership and risk and innovation. And every weekend he sends up on email with, you know, something, these things to read. And, and during COVID last summer, he ran a course for teenagers uh, that was on Zoom, but you could see the, the uh, recordings on his, on his website. And uh, Pamela Park is her name, Pamela Park. And I watched this, this talk of hers that was really for kids or say high school kids about leadership. And it's, she studies this, Gold Star, North Star. And she talked to like Elon Musk, Steve Jobs were a gold star, whereas someone like uh, Bill Welch at, 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 G, at, um, G, at uh, GE or some, some, you know, there are very few 
gold North Star leaders in healthcare. It's too structured. It's hard to be that way. There's just too much of the right way and the conventional wisdom of doing things. Plus, it's very mechanical in your in your scores, your your degrees, how you move ahead. You know, there there's the leadership demands those CV kinds of things to get promoted and to be even thought of. I mean, I'm not even considered for certain chairmanships because I don't have certain gold star stuff because it's not important to me. Do I think I could run a department? Absolutely. But, you know, you're not going to get those things because university hospitals in particular, medical schools, they need those people to have those things to, it's really for themselves and for their own ego. Oh, he has, you know, $10 million of NIH money. Well, who cares? But that's important to those institutions. So it's hard to be a, a North Star leader in healthcare, but I do think that the future was going to change. And this is Pamela Park's idea. I've had her on Brain Turns last summer. Um, I think she's coming back again this year. And I think that to me, it's a very important lesson learned for people going into healthcare to think out of the box and be creative. And I think your generation in particular are going to be a lot more opportunities for this kind of behavior because of the nature of what's going on and how disruptive um, technology is going to be. So that's where it comes from. It's not my own. I'm not going to take, I can't take responsibility for it. That's kind of like uh, if you read zero to one, the like horizontal versus vertical innovation. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd also love to hear more about like the differences and similarities with uh, team dynamics between the operating room and your startup boardroom or, you know, executive team meetings. I think the difference in ORs, for ORs are still very hierarchical because you are the surgeon. Uh, the other people in the room aren't really responsible for the patient and they are not as not trained as long it can be they very often are very culturally different than us they don't necessarily have gone to graduate school or or have had the depth of training that we do they train differently and their expectations are different very often it's just a job for them it's not a passion so you have to bring them up to your level almost and you have to demand a lot of them because they have a skill set too and you can't be successful without them in fact that's one of the biggest problems is surgeons tend to be very can be very, and I, I lose my temper sometimes. I've tried to get better, but it's part of it's that I really respect the people I work with and demand the best of them. They have to demand the best of themselves. They can't just wing it and expect it all to work out. And when, they, when they're lazy or not well-trained or just think they can do it just because they're asked to do it and don't really have a, a motivation to be the best, it, it, I can feel that and I can see it. So, but being a startup is very different. You have to surround yourself with people better than you who, who, are maybe smarter and better and more and, and do something totally different that because it's just too difficult to do it by yourself. And um, it's almost upside down. You, if you have an idea, you've got to get those, you know, fill those pieces. I need someone who can code and who can market, who can run the company. And I've got to give it up to them. I can't be selfish. I can't run a company. I, I don't have that background. So it's, it's almost, it's almost in reverse where you have to, you know, lower yourself almost and, and give your and, and not be the boss. Uh, now, some entrepreneurs get away with that. Mark Zuckerberg, for example, or Jeff Bezos, they were right there from the beginning and kept all the control. I mean, but they started when they were younger. You know, I I came as later and I have a day job, so to be fully controlling is not only selfish, but you're going to kill yourself. You got to give up the to that to other people because this is not going to be my entire life forever. I didn't look at this to become a billionaire or to, you know, save the world in, in, in that way. So I think that that's the difference between kind of 
being an entrepreneur um, and the way you have to approach your team versus the OR where um, you have to bring them up to your level. And I think that's a much different skill set and requires a different ego structure. You know, we also noticed that you seem to have just been at the right place at the right time at, you know, various points in your career. So we were wondering what's the secret sauce behind that continued serendipity? Well, I mean, luck is, I've had some bad luck too. I mean, I, you know, it wasn't all so easy. You know, the thing is, again, it goes down to trust and being a good person because it, if you do that, things come to you. And the really reason why Netflix happened is because I really worked hard with Erez Nosek, who's an Israeli neurosurgeon who I taught everything to. And I, we got along really well to care. I took care of him and made sure that he knew everything I knew with no whole, I mean, he was going to be in New York and he was going to compete with me, but I didn't care. I wanted to teach him everything I knew about. So open surgical vascular. And so when all of a sudden, when this Israeli film team comes to New York to film Netflix, they asked him who they should call. And had I, had he not respected me and knew the kind of person I was, he wouldn't have recommended them to me. And so that's just, you know, one example. I mean, Lennox was a, a, a lark. I mean, I, I, I made a huge mistake in going to North Shore in some ways, which is out on Long Island. I was really unhappy out there. And I, I was reverse commuting and my, I, I saw my life evaporating because I was, it was crazy hours. And I said, I can't do this the rest of my life. So I completely took a total shot at Lennox, which had nothing when I got there. You know, neurosurgery, no structure. That was insane as far as a career. That was a total gold star mistake. But it was kind of like, okay, I want to create work to create this thing. It's totally, and it worked, you know, somehow it worked. Um, so some of it's luck for sure. Some of it's willing to take risk. Doctors are incredibly risk averse in general. We, we all, you know, we don't handle risk very well. We're not trained up to how to manage risk. That's why they're terrible investors, but uh, you know, have to take some risk to be successful. I think those are two examples where you kind of create your own luck, but it's all based on relationships. It's all based on trusting someone and letting people into your way you really think and how you behave. And the rest is like a boomerang. You know, you may not be as successful as quickly. Maybe if I took a different pathway, I might've been more successful, like not leaving Penn. Maybe I would have won the Nobel prize, but you can't look at it that way. It's just one thing leads to another. And they just take as much advantage of each of these, these experiences you can and recognize the people that you impact matters. And that, you know, stepping on other people to get ahead makes no, makes no sense. So is it even worth to think about, like, you know, making the most of the relationships you, you have, you make in life or just being present and I guess, you know, putting out the best version of yourself? I think that's, that's the way to do it. I mean, the biggest decision you make in your life is your career and your spouse, or your significant other. I've made that, I mean, I, I've got divorced once and I made a mistake the first time around, but it led to my son. So on the other hand, I think that um, you have to recognize when you make a mistake and you can be upset, but don't you know, kill yourself over it. Everyone fails, learn from those mistakes and try to be better next time. And then um, recognize that, yes, it's, it's all comes down to being honest with yourself and honest with the people around you. That's all that matters really. Um, and if you, if you do that, you really can't lose, I don't think. So now shifting to your online presence and going back to Linux Hill, what does having an online presence mean to the way that your patients now interact with you? Uh, like, do they interact with you differently uh, now that you're a celebrity within medicine? Other than the patients do, sort of like my colleagues do. 
Okay. They aren't really using social. They, they sometimes will put something on social after I take care of them. I think the fact that I have a present, maybe they're looking me up or checking me out ahead of time. But I haven't gotten that much busier. It's kind of odd. I, I thought I'd be super, but maybe because people are afraid to travel or COVID, maybe that's why. But I don't see there's a direct relationship between my social and the number of cases I'm doing. Um, but on the other hand, I think that it's given me a voice. You know, I had zero Instagram followers before June of last year, and now I've got a ton of people on Instagram. I never used Instagram before, really, COVID, or before um, uh, uh, Netflix. And um, I find it to be really interesting. It's, it's a great way to communicate. Um, I think it's important that we're professional and that we're ethical and that we essentially portray ourselves in, in a real way and that we're not fake or try to only put out things that make us look good, that they recognize that we're like human and that we have, have concerns and families. Um, but I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting the way you have to use these media. I think Twitter is a little bit more, to me, a little more analytical and medical and academic. That's the way I use it. I, 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 I put things on Twitter that are more, I read a paper, an article, or congrats, you know, think this is really cool. With Instagram is more kind of personal, like here's my family, or we did this really cool thing at the hospital today. And I think you just have to stick to your your voice. And uh, it, it, it's it's a nice nice thing to have. It's not like a, some people like live or die with this stuff, like how many followers they have, or, you know, you know follow me. I, I just don't see it. I don't, it doesn't, it, I don't see it that way. It's not so transactional, but I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you that it's nice to be able to have an impact through it because I think that's the way the world communicates now. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. We also talked briefly about Zero to One. Um, have, you, have you read that book? Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm gonna ask you that, you know, Peter Thiel question then. Um, so what is something that you believe to be truth that few people agree with you on? That's a great question. One thing for sure is I, I think that the reason why people choose specific um, healthcare options have less to do with real outcomes and more to do with just blind faith. And uh, I wish there was a more of an understanding of what the best options were in, in a real way. So it's not really a great answer to your question, but I, in like in vascular neurosurgery, it, there's this other, it, there's a, this feeling that any, anything you can do to not open somebody's head is better than opening somebody's head. I think it's, it's not true. It's just not true that there are great options that require maybe more of, a, of a, an aggressive approach that are less invasive, but, in, but where the outcomes are absolutely better. And I think that that's, you know, there's a lot of marketing in medicine and there, whether in anything we do, there's this conventional wisdom that less is more and that um, something that's less invasive is safer, or there's a new device that makes that's better. There's a constant, you know, churn. And I think the truth is that most decisions we make are based on kind of uh, gestalt and aren't really based on truth. And so maybe that's the, the, the whether it's on a granular level like vascular neurosurgery or just the way we choose our doctors, the way we choose our hospitals, the way we choose pretty much anything, our spouse, 
you know, we often don't have great information when we make these decisions. And so I think that you have to be uh, aware that of these kind of biases that you have and that the real truth may be beyond your reach. And so, so it doesn't mean you should be paralyzed by decision-making, but recognize that sometimes we make decisions that, tr- to our, that are not good, but at least be honest when things aren't working out and then, and then you know, shift. Don't keep sticking to the same old things and you have to sometimes sell a bad stock. And so that's, I think, the, uh, the, maybe the best way to answer a very difficult question. I know that we're not using mobile phones and smartphones in healthcare the way we should. Absolute truth. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it's going to change. It's going to flip. We're going to be doing this. It's not aspirational anymore. This is going to happen. And there's going to be a mobile revolution in, for patients and providers in our lifetimes. And uh, that's the truth. And I guess jumping off from that, are there any specific times or stories in your life where you remember, um, you know, a specific belief you had clashed with someone else in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, even the fact that when I went to Lennox, there were a lot of people not wanting me to go. And I was, I kind of did it for a selfish reason. I wanted to get closer to home and stop reverse commuting. And there wasn't a, an agreement that that could really work. And they kind of smiled and said, do the best you can. And the trouble is, as the success grew, I, there was a lot of resistance that there it was uh, it was off-putting to leadership in the rest of the health system who who didn't choose for me to do this, and it created some friction between myself and my old boss, who he he looked this like a competitor and he was insecure about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I I had to go ahead and do this because I knew it was the right thing, and I came up against a lot of resistance. Um, to do it. And I, I suffered for it. I, I probably didn't grow as much in the health system as a leader because of when, what the, besides gold star things, you can get like, you know, zero star stuff when you do things that people don't want you to do. And it can nev- negatively impact your, your, your at least leadership on a, on a more um, bureaucratic level, titling and things like that. And so I, had, I took a real risk to do that. And uh, I, I did suffer for, for it because it wasn't what the kind of bureaucracy wanted. And, but then once we gave, became really successful, Netflix came out, all of a sudden everybody's piling on. Oh, yeah, they're amazing. This is great. We, were, we were, had their backs the whole time. That's just that's the price of, of, uh, of success sometimes. Yeah, and so thank you for joining us. And actually, I have, I have one final question to wrap us off. Um, across your life experience, what are you know the top three values that brought you to where you are today? Uh, honesty, courage, and conviction. All right, I I actually have a follow up to that. Then, so you know, what about your upbringing brought those values to you? I don't know. No. <laughs> I was even thinking making mistakes and looking at the world, uh, you know, not really being so confident in myself initially and questioning um, what I was doing. My dad got sick and died young. And so and I didn't have the greatest relationship with him. Um, I saw my parents' lives come apart when he got sick and um, realized that I had the, I, at one point I thought I never had anything go wrong with me when I was 23. And then my dad had a stroke and died seven years later. So 
I think recognizing kind of the fragility of life that started perhaps. And then, um, but I, I took, it took a while. I, mean, I can't say I, it's been also a learning process, running a department, recruiting people, learning to shrink your ego in order to have other people be successful and seeing how that works. So, and it, it, it's like, it begins to snowball and then flywheel a little bit. Like once you start doing it and you get success, then success even continues even more because very few, I don't know how many people can actually, and it's just, some of it's just kind of luck and being in the right place, right time. But I don't, I haven't met a bunch of as many people as I would like to think that have, have been able to go through this process, not the accomplishments, but able to process this the way I have. It's just, it just has to do with a variety of factors. Um, failed marriage, um, a new marriage, getting along with our exes, stepkids, kids that struggle to continue to struggle now and then and trying to be the best parent I can be, but being imperfect, screwing that up, you know, it's uh, but being honest with myself, you always want to be the best you can be. And I guess finally, one last thing, just any parting advice. I know you mentioned, you know, as things go wrong, wrong as they do in life, you know, for medical students or pre-meds, anyone that's uh, thinking about medicine, you know, what to do when things get hard and things get tough. I mean, nothing in life comes that's worth working for isn't hard. Sometimes it was, it was, that's what I always tell myself, like, it's really easy. Anybody could do it. And the, the, the pressure and the stress, and the strain ultimately are why you become great. That it's the training and the time you put in. If it was just, that didn't you didn't go through that? You, it's not worth doing, you know. And that's uh, that's why the best athletes train hard, and it's 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 part of the experience. And the key thing is not to lament it; it's just kind of find a way to enjoy it. It's that that it's it's the it's the why I enjoyed rowing, even though it took away from my party time and the beer I drank and the drugs I did in college, and I couldn't do it, you know. So I, you know, everyone else is partying, and I was making these sacrifices, but. It taught me many, many deep lessons about teamwork and camaraderie and, and keeping my head in the boat and pulling as hard as I can. And I think that those, those, those truths run through the rest of my life. And so, you know, you're not missing anything. The hard work is the way it is. If it, like, even as a nurse surgeon, I'm glad I went through that stuff. At the time, it sucked. I remember like pulling my hair out, eating a banana in the shower for dinner because I was so tired. But in the end, I think those those experiences are what are the crucible of what makes us great, and you need to continue to do that and you know, continue to work hard. It's not it's it's to me it's not even hard work anymore. It's just part of um, the 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 what it takes to really be successful. And I I you know feel really lucky. Thank you, Dr. Langer, and thank you for listening to the MSX podcast. You're the man. Thanks, guys. <laughs>